0: You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale.
1: The sprawling legends area of Kansas City, Kansas is anchored by Kansas Speedway, the home of two NASCAR race weekends every year. So much of the development in the area can be tied to the Speedway, which opened in 2001. Pat Warren has been at the track for about 15 years and has led the efforts at the track for nearly a decade after spending many years in college athletics and the corporate business world. He's known as a great leader who manages people without micromanaging. Talk to anyone who works at or with Kansas Speedway, and they'll tell you positive stories about Pat. Race weekend is a rush, but it wouldn't happen without a well oiled and well planned approach. And Pat Warren gets a lot of the credit for that. Pat, welcome to Sports Connections. Hey, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, well, let's start with your background. How did you get involved in sports? Because as I mentioned, you were in college athletics for a while before joining uh, the Kansas Speedway. Uh, well, I did my undergraduate and law school
0: work at the University of Kansas. And in the second year of law school, I was working, I was a board member of actually the nonprofit that runs, so to speak, the athletic department at KU. Um, it was called Athletic Creation Board at the time. I'm not sure what it is now but it was a 501 C3. I was a student member. And so I got to know Bob Frederick, who was the director. And I went and talked to Bob about, you know, what it took to do a career in sports. I'd never really thought about it before then. Um, And that led to uh, an internship during my third year of law school, which led to sort of a glorified internship my first year out of law school, turned into an eight-year career in intercollegiate
1: athletics. Uh, And was that all at Kansas or was that at various places?
0: The, the eight years in intercollegiate athletics was all at Kansas. Um, in the – I want to say it was – you could go back and look at the year, but in the middle of that time, the Big 12 was created, a finalist for the Big 12 job uh, to be one of the commissioner. Um, and had he gone, probably would have joined him and gone to the Big 12. Uh, but as it worked out, they hired Steve Hatchell and and we both stayed at KU.
1: Yeah, and then you went into the corporate world for a while. Where, where did that take you?
0: Well, so I left KU in 2002, uh, sold my house, moved to Chicago, went to the University of Chicago's Graduate School of Business full-time in their MBA program. Thought I was going to get out of sports completely. Um, got recruited to sprint when I was there for something called their staffship program, which is sort of an executive development program. Um, but it jump-started you and the company is probably the best way to explain it. Um, so I got hired into that program, came back, worked for Sprint, and became a spin-off right, with the next merger, um for about two years and then got hired at the track.
1: Okay. Uh, were you a fan of NASCAR before you started working there? What, what's your background with NASCAR? Yeah, I was not uh, – I was. I would describe myself as a
0: casual fan. The yeah. first – what was then Sprint or Nextel Cup, which year I was here, first Nextel Cup race I attended was the first one I worked I had been to truck series races before. I'd been to IndyCar races. I'd watched a decent number of on TV. Um, but, you know, I learned 99% of what I've learned about our industry I've learned on the job.
1: And so if you came into it without a great deal of knowledge, what surprised you about the sport? Um, probably the big. it's sort of a, a, comp,
0: a combination the complexity of our events relative to what I was used to in, in football and, and uh, basketball, which were the you know the bigger I'd managed at KU, um, our event much more complex both because of the length and the scale, um, and I mean physical scale. Uh, and then the other thing, which sort of the complexity, is access that we give our fans. And so uh, while we have Extremely complicated and inherently dangerous events. Frankly, we mm-hmm. also provide a level of fan access that I think is unparalleled in all sports.
1: Yeah, it's certainly. I mean, I I've, obviously I was there in October uh, for for this year's races and or for the 2021 races, and I've been there before. And you know, you're, you're if you're not careful when you're walking down, there's a there's a you know a three thousand pound race car with seven hundred and something horsepower right on your tail and you, you know, you got to get out of the way. They're, they're not yeah. going to, you know, they're not going to move, but it's interesting that you're right there with the athletes. You you can mingle with them. Unlike in any, really in any other sport. And, you know, I cover baseball, I cover football and, you know, the reporters, we get to be there, but the fans get to be right there right. with them except when the drivers, except when they're in the car, even the fans during the race, if they're sitting behind one of the pit crews, they can, Go up and talk to a pit crew member. So that's that's pretty cool. What do you enjoy the most about being involved? And in? I, I like to call it the go fast and turn left league. Um,
0: probably the two things that I appreciate most about uh, working in NASCAR and working where I do, aside from the the culture that I think we've Kansas you know, a strong team and and we Kansas Speedway family is the work that we do and the connection that we have as an industry with the military uh, is very important to me. Yeah.
1: And
0: then, uh, the relationship we have generally with our fans, um, which is, and I'm not going to pretend that we make every fan a hundred percent satisfied every but we do our best to deliver the best experience we can to everybody who comes on property. And I think most of our customers and fans appreciate that. And so, you know, I get a lot of energy out of, of, working our events on a race weekend and it really hit home for me how much I take out of the event from interacting with our fans when we had to run races without fans Yeah, because that's just, it's frankly a deflating experience. Oh yeah.
1: Um, Now every, every sport will claim that their primary purpose is to interact with fans is to, is to please their fans. And you'll see it, you know, when, when they bring the podium out onto the field and give somebody a trophy, you know, this is for the best fans in the world and we do this for our fans when we all know the guys that are playing and, and you know, to that extent with females in women's professional sports. Most of them are doing it because they're really good at it. They get paid well. They enjoy the success and stuff. And maybe this is not a fair question, but do you feel that NASCAR does that best, really does it for the fans? Because the drivers are well paid. And they're very good at it. And the owners are making money. But do you feel like the fan experience is the most important thing in NASCAR, more so than any other sport?
0: Yeah, I think that's probably a fair statement. And, I, you know, I was with uh, Joe Gibbs and Vic Wayne one year. I think Danny Hamlin won the race. And, and I was talking to him, sort of standing behind where some of the media were. And him thought the biggest difference was between the NFL and NASCAR. And he sort of laughed and he said, well, if any NFL fan got as close and he sort of looked to the side of us, he said, yeah. as close as any of these fans are, to an NFL quarterback, they'd probably be arrested. <laughs> um, you know, and it's just, that's just true. I mean, it's yeah. just different. It's a different setup. And it's a different expectation of sort of distance between fan and competitor. Um, and it's just part of the, the DNA of our sport. And I think um, if you look at guys like Richard Petty and, and Dale Sr., and the amount of time they spent trying to cultivate and build one-on-one relations, that's what our sport, we've lost some of that, frankly, and there's a whole variety of reasons that that's happened. A lot of it's just the size of the sport now. It's bigger, Um, but uh, it's still in our DNA, and it's still important.
1: Do you think that came from being primarily a Southern sport where hospitality, and I I hate to overgeneralize but hospitality is a way of life in the South, where maybe in the Northeast or the, uh, the West Coast, maybe even a certain extent in the, in the Midwest, it's, we're a little more uh, aloof. You think that came from the, the fact of the Southern roots? That, that may be, but I think the other thing was economic, um,
0: which it, Jeff Gordon made this point once, that Dale Sr. never made more money on the track racing than he made on track on merchandise his entire career. And when, when that's the case, um, you have an incentive, a financial incentive to personally connect with your customer in a way that I don't think anybody in sports has today. Um, And so if you, if, and I don't know about Richard Petty's situation, but I assume it was comparable that, you know, merchandise and sales to fans meant something. Well, then you stay there and you autograph and you do the things that you need to do to, uh, to sell that merchandise, those relationships.
1: I got to know uh, Dale a little bit uh, when I I first got into covering the sport uh, before he passed away. And as you know, the intimidator that wasn't him uh, at the track, you know, when he was mingling among the fans and I talked to him a little bit and he was courteous to the press, but to the fans, he was, he knew his popularity and he, and he used that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't mean to be negative in any way about this, but they're obviously recognizing that if they're popular with the fans, they're going to, those fans are going to buy more stuff and they're going to make more money. Right, Um, And and so that's kind of what you're saying. then. Yeah, I think so.
0: But I do think there was also, he was genuine. Um, And so it was a combination of being able to be genuine, be who he was and, Probably a, an honest desire to connect with fans. Yeah, um, which I'm I'm not sure. And I'm not talking about anyone in particular, but not all professional athletes today, drivers or other athletes, particularly want to have that interaction. Yeah. So, and I understand that. I, you know, some people are are not inclined to
1: do that. And yeah. That's always been the case in every industry. Yeah, and certainly with the the uh, popularity of social media, where if you say one thing, that could be construed, right. It, Wrongly, uh, you have, you know, the athletes, the personalities, you and I have to be more careful what we put on Twitter, what we put on Facebook, what we what we say in a gathering with people we may not know. So I think it's certainly understandable. But I I do think and I've thought about this a lot. I do think the Southern roots uh, certainly uh, have helped that uh, that approach where they're in it for the they're really in it for the fans. I want to Mm -hmm. change gears a little bit and talk about the sport a little bit. Uh, To me, NASCAR, and maybe it's all motor racing, but NASCAR specifically is the only sport where every team but one loses every week. We talk about baseball being a a game of handling failure. How do you describe the process? And You deal with teams all the time, NASCAR teams. How do you describe the process of dealing with failure in NASCAR? Well, so I think for the for the teams, the drivers in particular, you know, you
0: need to delineate between a team, say Hendrick Motorsports as a team and the number 48 car as an example. And I think you're referring to the 48 car. Correct. Um, But even so, only one organization, if you call Hendrick the organization and 48 the team, only one can win. Um, All of the people who compete in our sport grown up with that kind of a competitive environment. And so they're not used to a situation where on a, say, national scale, half the teams in the NFL win every week and half. Um, So I think it creates a higher high when you win and probably a low, low when you don't because winning is so infrequent. Um, That's, I think, the psychology of it. Uh, For fans who come to the race, I think what it does is it creates sort of these interesting friend rivalries Because most fans know when they come to a race that it's not likely their driver is going to win. Now, Kyle Larson this year may have been an exception to that, or you know, like every other driver, (laughs) right? Driver in any given year who's having a lot of success, and and your odds are going to be better than in a a normal year on the one of forty. You know that that an average, just the average driver, statistically speaking, might have. Um, But uh, so, fan, what fans do then is it's. Well, how does driver finish compared to your driver? And it's sort of this friendly rivalry and ribbing of you know, well, I'm a Kyle Busch fan, and Kyle beat Kyle beat Kyle Larson, and so my guy did and your guy, even though neither of them won the race. Um, and so I
1: think that's how our fan base deals with it. And in some cases, my guy beat your guy means he he tapped him, <laughs> he rubbed right. him, you know, using that's some right. using some of those uh, those racing terms, which I think are so funny. You know, uh, if, you're not, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. And obviously, we're not going to get into that too much. But, you know, tapping, rubbing, you're driving 190 miles an hour. If you tap somebody, <laughs> that's a serious thing. But it's, the euphemisms in the sport are absolutely hilarious in, in, in my word. I, I want to talk a little bit about the fan experience. And I, I kind of skipped over this. To me, and obviously, you spend a lot of time at Allen Fieldhouse. And I'm a K-State fan. Went to graduate school there, and I think the best arena in college basketball is Allen Fieldhouse. You've spent a lot of time there, and the noise is, is just it, – it's all-encompassing. And I've spent a lot of time at Arrowhead Stadium, and I was at Kauffman Stadium in, in the mid-2010s when uh, the Royals were really good. The, that, the noise at those arenas and those facilities don't compare to the noise at a restart – uh, to the noise, if you're fortunate enough to be, you know, in the first few row, I guess probably anywhere within two or three miles of the of the track. But if you're close by, or if you're standing on in the behind the pit row, where the pit crews are, the noise you you don't just hear it, you feel it. Is that part of the fan experience that's unique to to NASCAR? Yeah, I think so, and you know, I think
0: anybody. Likes to watch sporting events. The reason they do it is because you're watching someone do something that, in some way or another, you know you can. Yeah. Um, and so you talked about the drivers going 190 miles an hour. Well, I might be able to drive that speed on a straight line car that was well built. Yeah. But if anybody touches me at that speed, it's probably not going well for me. Yeah. Um, And and the fact that our drivers can go out and race for three and a half hours at those kind of speeds in conditions that, you know, if you talk to them, they would liken to hydroplaning or driving on ice um, and and getting pushed around, either whether it's literally physically pushed by another car or whether air between the cars, you know, acting as being pushed. um, It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, And so I, I think that's, what all sports great, what would be great to go to a chiefs game is seeing Patrick Mahomes do something that no one ever thought a quarterback would, and he does it and he does it repeatedly. Yeah. And like one exciting <laughs> here. Yeah. Is, is seeing Kyle Bush or Kyle Larson do the same thing to see their car slide sideways at 165 miles an hour and they recover and, and don't lose a spot in the race. And, <laughs> you know, for anybody that's been behind the wheel of a car, You know what that what it's like to be in the snow going miles an hour when that happens. Imagine going eight times as fast with thirty nine other cars around you barreling at you at speed. And so it's one of you, one of you out. Right. The the noise sound is a big part of it. Um, And what's interesting to me when we have our friends from the military here, you know, from the Air Force, we had folks from Whiteman Air Force Base. They're around big machines, big engines all the time. They still get excited by little kids at a restart, like little yeah. kids at a restart, um, and so that says something about what's happening there and why people love it.
1: I want to talk about your leadership at Kansas Speedway. I've heard you say uh, various places that you don't ask anybody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. How does that work in your role as the president of the Speedway? Well, I
0: I just look at it as leading by example, um, and so I you know. I, first of all, I don't think there's any, my personal philosophy is you shouldn't want to ask someone to do something you aren't willing to yourself. If there's some reason you aren't willing to do the job, you need to ask why the job needs to be done.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. and, and what's appropriate, how do you get it done? Um, so, you know, whether people sort of laugh because they'll see me on property picking up trash and it's not like I'm going to a trash bag, I'm picking up smaller things that I see or a, a loose piece of paper, not that I'm above you know, grabbing a trash bag and doing those things. But, yeah. um, you know, if you want to be proud of where you work and proud of the people you work with, you try to take care of things. Um, and so I think we all operate that way. Um, and when everybody operates with that kind of a philosophy, it makes everybody's job easier because nobody's, li- nobody looks at things and says, that's not my job. Yeah. And everybody's pulling towards a goal saying, our job is to deliver the best experience to our fans. And then that, inv- that involves this whole variety of things
1: that if we don't work together on, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And, and the, I think, you know, I've worked for people who have that same approach and I've, I've been a leader and I try and have that same, and it's not easy, but I've had us trying to have that same approach. But <clears throat> when everybody feels like there's nobody who's above this job, and they also feel like there's nobody who's beneath a certain job. Everybody right. seems to work harder because you have that common goal. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know,
0: well, I, I would say I would never ask someone to do a job that I'm not willing to do. There are a lot of people who do jobs that I cannot do. Yeah. Um, you know, Randy Christie is a guy who he, he's sort of our utility infielder on the operations team. The guy can fix anything from a plumbing or electrical perspective, those kind of. I can't do that. Yeah. Jose Alvarado, our head mechanic. Jose can fix anything that moves. Um, I can't do that. I don't have that skill set. I would try. I'd be happy to help Jose. I'd be happy to help Randy. But they have skills and knowledge that I don't have and will probably never have.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about the the rush of race weekend. Obviously, as we're recording this, uh, the season's over and it it won't start up again until mid-February. There's plenty of work to do between the two races that you have each year, one in the spring and one in the fall. But there's something special about race weekend. First, just to overall in general, just talk about the rush of race weekend and compared to the, I don't want to say mundane, but the, the just the day-to-day stuff of preparing for that race weekend.
0: Well, I guess I'd say two things. One, Darren Cook, who's our VP of operations and I came out of college athletics and both of us talked, not infrequently about the the differences between a race weekend and say a football game or mm-hmm. or a men's basketball game at KU um and I think there's a couple of things that make it different one is you know in our case the the big one is the NASCAR cup series is only here twice a year in some cities it's only there once a year right um and people travel in from all over the country not to do that for the the chief royals or KU but it's a little bit different here um the other thing that makes it different is, uh, aside from the physical scale of our events, is the length. We're sort of on from, say, Thursday until Monday noon. Um, and it's not that we don't sleep during that time, but we don't get as much sleep as we normally would. Yeah. But the, the I think the more important thing from a sports business perspective is that we only have window of time to get it right with our fans. The advantage I had when I was at KU and that I think the Chiefs or the Royals have is that if something isn't perfect for game one, you've got the Roy- in the race 80 more games to fix it and figure it out better. You know, the Chiefs have a, a lot more games, 10 games at home, opportunities. If parking doesn't work at the first, they can fix it for the second game. If parking for us doesn't work on a Friday, we've got to figure it out overnight for Saturday and God forbid if we don't stop out by Sunday because – A lot of our fans, if if we screw that up, we've lost them. They're not coming back. Um, And so that's the difference in sort of the pressure and the energy. And I think the two, both the pressure and the energy of race weekend play off each other, because you know, you're at a point where you can't fail, you know, um, you know, the race is coming, whether you're ready or not, the green flag is going to drop and you've got to do everything you can to deliver everything possible. until that green flag drops and after in our case, but
1: and I would say that maybe a third thing is the size of the arena, size of the event, because what, what does Kansas Speedway hold? Like 175,000, something like that? Well, our, our grandstands hold about fifty, But okay. we've got
0: 2,200 camping spaces. Um, you know, are sold another 3,500. Uh, our terraces hold I don't know, several hundred RVs. It, you can fit Kauffman, Aaron. Uh, sporting Park and the Monarch State inside our infield and not touch the asphalt on the apron of the track.
1: Yeah, and That's not the touch scale each other. The yeah, I, I saw that picture in the media room of yeah. an aerial of these, of the race of the track rather, and with the four stadiums, you know, you might have had to do a little finagling, but all four of them fit in there. That was that was pretty impressive. So there, I mean, you've got to do this twice a year for a lot of people covering a large area, and it's a continuous, continuous rush.
0: Yeah, the, you know, the other thing that's interesting that I think makes our sport different and more complex is um, for other sports that I've been with, you've got a home team and a visiting team, right? Mm-hmm. The home team is operating in a very routine manner at their stadium, and they, they know exactly what they're going to do. Yeah. The visiting team has a general set of expectations about this is what's going to be in the locker room. This is how we're going to get from the locker room to the court of the field, all the things. In our case, we deal with four visiting teams in each garage every weekend. Sometimes we have 120 visiting teams. If we're running three series on a race weekend, some of the competitors are living on site. So yeah. you know, they have their offices here and their cars. And, and so it's just, it's a very complex environment. And, People, people discuss to their own chagrin that when you ship something to Kansas Speedway on a race weekend, pretty broad palette. Um, and so it could arrive at the casino. It can arrive at our offices. It can arrive at our operations building. And depending on who is it and when it arrives, it may or may not have its destination. Um, and so we work really hard to try to, these teams do have to do that. They, they need things on a race weekend. Figuring out just the, what would seem to be simple logistics of, Hendrick Motorsports getting something from their shop in North Carolina to the infield is not as easy as it might seem because yeah. the FedEx or UPS driver can't just drive it down into the garage put off.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, a more general question, and this may be really difficult for you to answer. How can NASCAR get better? Um, I think we can get better if we
0: can figure out how to explain our sport to people, frankly, sort of like me, who didn't really grow up in it. Because I took this job, I had a very um, unsophisticated view of how our competition worked and how the sport worked. I, I had no idea as an example that our cars, the NASCAR Cup cars and the Xfinity and the Series cars, Built in rooms that look more like siege surgery than garages. They're little in white rooms because they have to be for the tolerance um, that, you know, uh, thermodynamics and PhDs uh, in engineering and various areas of physics are critical to the, to the success of our teams and our sport. Um, I think there's a perception that because it's stock car racing that it's, it's something simple and it's anything, but Yeah. Um, Yeah. when you, you combine that level of sophistication with the openness that our sport has, where you can come to the race, listen on a radio to the crew chief, the driver and the spot talk live during the race and communicate that opens up a whole new world, man, but you've got to get the fan there. And my personal experience is once you get a fan to use a radio at a race, it, the, 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 whole event takes on a different feel and a different level of understanding. And to me, it makes all the difference in the world for, for, again, for a first time fan or what I'd call an average fan coming who's not ingrained in the sport already because the sport suddenly makes sense when they do that.
1: Yeah. I I would think part of it, and basically what you're talking about is finding new fans who will become devoted fans. I'm guessing part of that is a new demographic. We recently published an interview with Jordan Page, who's the jackman for the number 23 car. Jordan came to NASCAR as a former college football player, He's right. an African-American who never had any interest in racing or mechanics. But when I interviewed him, I said, what are your goals? He said, I want to be a face of NASCAR, reaching people who look like me. How good would it be for NASCAR to tap into this new market of the, the African-American market? I mean, you walk around the, the the garage area. You look into the stands. You look into pit crews, and it's primarily white. How how important and and how much would it help NASCAR to do a better job of tapping into that market? It, I mean, it, it helps us generally. We I don't think we should
0: exclude anyone. Obviously, right. Um, so I you know I think what we need to do is be genuine to everyone. and I I would use the, I'd use the phrase sort of meet them where they are, um, and you understand. I think we need to understand and better understand um, how to make our events feel welcoming to people who may look at us as a southeastern, predominantly white sport. Right. If you come to our events, you see that that's not the case. But the, again, sort of the stereotype of NASCAR is that southeastern, you know, mostly white, not very diverse kind of atmosphere. And, and again, come to an event at Kansas Speedway, you're going to see something different. Um, walk along to your point. You're going to see a lot of different pit road um, because a lot, most of the pit crews are exactly what you described. Former college student athletes. They're they're young people who couldn't play successfully in most cases football, but who played collegiately, and they're in another sport now, using those skills in a way that they ne- most of them never imagined they would. Can
1: Can you see NASCAR taking some? And and I I became I. I I was walking around the garage area looking for people, looking for uh, PR people, basically, to line up for interviews for this podcast. And I, I walked up to the to the trailer uh, for the 23 team and I was looking for the PR person. And I and I said, I, I host a podcast and I'm looking for people to be guests. And Jordan, who's, you know, six, four and and <laughs> looks like a football player, right. says his deep voice, I'll be on your podcast. And I said, OK who are you? You know, and I'm, right. I'm open, I'm open to having anybody on there, but this got this young man, articulate, well-spoken, mm-hmm. you know, very intellectual, uh, guy. And he said, I'm not a mechanic. I'm never going to be more than a jackman on this team, but I've got things I can say, and I can help reach. I can help reach my demographic. I mean, grew up in Buffalo, went to went to, I think Clark Atlanta, but went to one of the traditionally black schools in the South and NASCAR came to the school and was recruiting football players for a, for a program uh, for pit crew and stuff. But could NASCAR use somebody like that to promote itself? Well, I think we already are. I mean, we've got the drive for diversity program,
0: which is more driver focused, right? Um, We are doing things like you said, with the pit crew. I think, one of the interesting challenges um, with and I don't mean this in any any kind of a negative way, but most sports media don't want to interview the offensive lineman interview the quarterback. Yeah and so the pit crew are the offensive line and if you've got if you've got Patrick Mahomes or your offensive lineman you always want to talk to Patrick Mahomes. Or a backup um, offensive
1: lineman. I mean, I mean, way right. down, way down the food chain, so to speak. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I think I think that's where that challenge is, is that you we have to figure out a way that there's a telling story to be told. And why do I want to listen to what this person has to say about it? Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, probably frankly, put unfair pressure on guys like Bubba Wallace um, and Eric Almarola and you know, Daniel Suarez. Um, it, it's, I think probably an undue amount of pressure on them to sort of carry that uh, that weight um, trying to introduce new uh, new demographics to our sport mm-hmm. um, when we can we can help them with others. It's a matter of, again, trying to figure out how you connect the story to the individual.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting thought. Uh, just general terms. What, what's the future of NASCAR? it's bright. I mean, we're, we're in a really good
0: spot right now in terms of growth of our sport. Um, I, I been here 15 years. And so I've seen the sport at it's almost its highest height. And I saw it slide for a while, seen it grow. Um, And it's a lot more in a growing sport than a declining sport. I can tell you that. Um, And, you know, the reasons, some of the reasons that we lost fans over the years are things that don't really want to talk about too much, which are, you know, we signed very lucrative television deals to build cable networks. And when you do that and you're building a cable network, first FS1, now NBCSN, which is going away uh, after this year, but you reduce your your broadcast televisions, well, you're reducing your opportunity to introduce yourself to new fans. Yeah, Um, And so so, the casual fan, it just happens. Right, the casual casual fan, exactly. And so while the loyalty of fan base was what Fox and NBC wanted and paid for and said, we want this. We know NASCAR fans will find our new cable product because they care about the sport so much. Mm -hmm. In the the trade-off that we made, we lost the opportunity to expose ourselves to the casual fan, which impacted probably more at the rack than other things. also led to ratings challenges and other things because if you're only in half as many television homes, your ratings aren't going to be as good. That's just how it is. You know, there's a one i I don't want to draw into the NFL because it's not fair but the NF, one of the reasons the NFL is such a ratings behemoth is that all of their games are nationally televised they should be they have that size of events but right. as we look at our television that's going to be an important component how we balance cable potentially you know streaming paper kind of things and the broad and the, and I'd call it the over-the-air broadcast
1: Okay, a uh, little more close to home. What's the future for Kansas Speedway? I think it's bright. Um, you know, we were are uh,
0: the development story that you opened with about the legends and those kind of things. Teams love to come here. It's a it's a thing that I hear all the time. Um, fans, I think, who have been to other racetracks in other parts of the country are shocked when they come here and see that there is so much to do in the immediate vicinity of the racetrack. Yeah. And one of the stories that I tell is that, uh, and we, we really found this out <laughs> during COVID we'd always receive sort of some complaints from NASCAR officials about why is there always such a long line of cars at your time to get in and out of the infield. And it wasn't that big of a deal. And, you know, we'd sort of play We'll work on this. We'll figure it out. Well, when COVID hit and we had to start and we reintroduced fans on the infield, then there were questions about traffic flow and get into the traffic flow with the competitors and, and how are we dealing with that? Our, Darren Cook, our VP of operations, I think when NASCAR was saying, well, why do your fans need to leave the infield? He, he asked the person who asked him that, well, why do you need to leave the infield? Because well, they want to go to the, the barbecue place, you know, a mile and a half away. Or they want to go to NFM, Cabela's or, or somewhere in the land or, or whatever yeah. else it may be. Well, our fans love that, too. Um, and so the reason that we've got traffic in our tunnel is there's something to do outside the tunnel. And it's a great thing for us. And it's a great thing as a city.
1: All right. I'd like to wrap up my interviews with, with two opportunities. First of all, talk about your family. Uh, so
0: my, uh, I'm happily married, live in uh, Kansas. My wife's actually in public office. I don't know if you were aware of that. She's a state mm-hmm. senator. She's running for general right now. Um, got four kids, our old daughter at the University of Southern California. She's in the marching band. Um, I've got two in high school and one in middle school. So three oldest are girls, one's a boy. We've got two at home, Eisenhower and Louis. uh, Eisenhower is an eight-year-old chocolate lab. Louie's a one-year-old yellow lab. Um, who we from some friends of ours who had a litter literally in the middle of the, the pandemic. Um, and so, uh, but we have a busy household. We have a lot going on. Um, but I always try to remain focused on, on family. Frankly, uh, he is, and, and I'll, I may regret saying this, but it's more important than my job or anything else that I do. That's that's what's going to matter in the long term.
1: Yeah. And and I hope you, you never have to I hope we never have to regret putting family first, because, you know, you can be and I'll, this will lead up to my last question. You can be really good at what you're doing. But if, if you're not doing things right at home, it doesn't matter. So, yeah, the last, I,
0: you know, David, David, one thing I would say is our. Our leadership in our industry, and I'm talking about the France family who owns NASCAR, um, never puts us in a position of having to make that off. They've always been very clear. Family is the most thing. Um, my first track, my mother-in-law, or my mother, I'm sorry, um, was in the late stages of Alzheimer's. Um, and they, we were afraid she was going to pass away on the race weekend. And at that time, the president of our company and Mike Helton at that time was running NASCAR both came to me and said, hey, you need to spend the time with your mother. You only have mom. You're going to have plenty of race weekends as a track president. And they gave me the license to do what I needed to do. As it turned out, my mother passed away after that, but I never felt like there was a conflict where if something yeah. happened, I couldn't leave. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really a testament to, to the, the family orientation that our sport has, generally speaking.
1: Yeah. And, and we talked earlier that a lot of sports will talk, just like they talk about the fan experience, they'll talk about the family atmosphere. But I've noticed uh, in, in my time and 20 years of covering, covering the sport, somewhat from a distance, the family thing is, is very real. I mean, you've got, as we talked earlier, you've got 40 guys, usually guys, driving really heavy machinery at, at ridiculously fast speeds and any one of them could have a, you know, a, a terrible act, even a fatal accident. Right. And, and they're highly competitive. And occasionally they'll even mix it up and get mad at each other. But then the next day you'll see them just chatting, leaning against one of the cars and just, and they're friends. And I think that goes back to that same family, uh, family attitude about the yep. sport.
0: I think we're the sport where families routinely travel with the competitors. Yeah. Um, yeah. where we've got a, a family center on our infield, you know, the motor coach for the for the drivers. It's it, not every weekend, but it's not uncommon to see families, kids, dogs, yeah. cats, you know, everything else. In the, and yeah. the family travels and you can't
1: do that. You can't or don't do that in other sports. Yeah. All right. Last question. I always wrap up with this one and you can interpret this however you want. Answer it however you want. What's your legacy? My legacy here or my legacy as a person? Yes. What's your legacy? <laughs> I said Martin's you can interpret family. it however you want.
0: It's my family. Um, because, uh, you know, my children and their children are going to be what continue my legacy on on this earth. Um, hopefully I'm making a difference here and people will remember that. Um, but ultimately the legacy is my family because uh, they're the ones who are going to remember me and remember everything I did. Uh, I'm going to do as much as I can here to make this place great for everybody who loves racing, NASCAR, and motorsports. Um, and again, hopefully I'm remembered for that. But what what really matter is the legacy with my my children and their children. All right. That's great.
1: Great way to wrap up. Pat Warren, president of Kansas Speedway. It's a pleasure to, to uh, have you on today. And I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmailbooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.